Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, I'm a sad hunchback. You are a sad hunchback, but Cam, it's Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, sir. And, you know, I know you're desperate to light your sacred candle and for me and you to go and snuggle huggle somewhere. But uh, I think we have a special mission today. And as you can see, I've set out a dinner for us, but there's three chairs here, which means we have a guest joining us for this Valentine. Is it Claude Rains? <laughs> it is not Claude Rains. I, Claude oh. Rains would be a, a, well, that's more of a spooky Halloween episode, wouldn't you say? <laughs> Well, I was thinking of Notorious, but yeah, I guess he did play Phantom of the Opera, so yeah. I was thinking more of a ghost, but sure. Um, but we do have a very special guest joining us this week. Uh, it is none other than Kat from the Don't You Want Me podcast. Hello, Kat. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for inviting me on this mission. Yes, yes. The mission that you've chosen to accept by, by showing up, which we appreciate. Oh, well, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. No, it's it's our pleasure. I think before we get into the the Valentine's Day fun and the movie that we have this week for everyone, let's let's talk about you and your spy credentials a little bit. Um, I mentioned the Don't You Want Me podcast, which we'll talk about in a second. But the one thing it noted that I noted when I was looking at your podcast the other day is your first episode is Casino Royale, two thousand six. It is indeed, it is, and it was um the first time I'd seen it since seeing it in the cinema, actually. Um when I rewatched it for our podcast, Don't You Want Me? And I thought it was such a chic and classy film. It was so wonderful to revisit. And um, I know you guys did a fantastic episode on it as well. So that's a very good one to watch on Valentine's Day, I reckon. Very good love story there. Very convincing chemistry between Eva Green and Daniel Craig. Maybe skip the ending if you want a happy, happy <laughs> Valentine's Day. <laughs> Uh, I could uh, go down in flames, but yeah. Um, yeah. What what prompted you to start with Casino Royale of all of all films? Well, well, we wanted to go off with a bang, you know, and that one I think it it draws so much inspiration from Hitchcock and you know all of the, as well as obviously the the great era of Bond films from the sixties and so on. So I think it it combines a lot of things that you want from a really gripping central relationship in a film do you think so i think it's quite a white knuckle ride that one isn't it oh yeah i would say so that's a great that's a great um i think a lightning rod episode to launch a podcast with for sure yeah yeah they you know they, it really gives you something to get your teeth into that relationship between them and um that's the thing with the podcast we're always trying to look for those connections between people where you can really see you know a combination of uh, the writer, the director, and, you know, really good casting, really good chemistry between actors and it all just, you know, really being explosive. But sometimes we cover films where it falls a bit flat and that can be really fun to talk about as well. So <laughs> it can go in all kinds of directions. So, yeah, but that's true of relationships. So. <laughs> I'm curious what the origin was for the podcast. Like what kind of inspired you guys to start it? Uh, well, I think it was several things, really. I've been trying myself to write play scripts. And I think that when you're trying to write dialogue, you really start to notice that between two people, unless you've managed to nail a convincing relationship between people, the whole thing falls flat. 
Mm-hmm. And um, that in itself, as a kind of storytelling technique, can be quite interesting. And uh, Rich, who's my co-host, we did a couple of podcasts together um, of a podcast that he used to do called Betamax Club. And um, I think we did A Fish Called Wonder, and then we did Moonstruck. And when we were talking about those films, I think we just noticed actually that, yeah, those, so even though you can have different genres, sometimes if you get a central relationship between two people and it really crackles and it's really entertaining, that can be kind of the glue that holds a film together. So everything else can be, you know, going on around these two people, but if they get it right, then yeah, just everything else falls into place. And I think just from there, you know, we thought, oh, actually, you know, it might be quite good to do a podcast where that's the focus, really. You know, it's those connections between people and all the different directions that they can go in. It can sometimes be, it's often romantic, but we also have done, you know, we've done things like Point Break, we've done The Nice Guys, uh, we've done Die Hard, we've done all kinds of ones. So, you know, sometimes it could be working relationships, sometimes it could be friendships. And I think this film that we're going to cover today, oh, it's really really interesting relationship at the center of this one so you guys have picked a wonderful one for us to talk about tonight well it's quite a rich text in terms of relationships not just the main one but lots of sort of ancillary relationships which i want to get into when we talk about the film as well but is there a film because it's something that we get asked a lot when we go on other shows and i think it's a very good question and i'm gonna steal it Hmm. is there a film that from your exploration of film through the podcast that you have found and you now sort of champion that you didn't really know much about before Oh, that's that's a really good question. Um, well, actually, Casino Royale was a little bit like that. I didn't necessarily see myself as someone that was that interested in Bond films or, um, in fact, uh, the spy film genre. And Uh-oh. by watching that... <laughs> it's, it's been nice having you on the show. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, but, but, but this is the thing, as a result of having watched some Bond films for the podcast, I'd say that, um, yeah, it's definitely given me an opportunity to think a little bit more about them. And, you know, films like Drive, again, it gave me a perspective with which I felt a little bit more confident, perhaps, to 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 look through that lens and think about it just from a storytelling point of view. I think sometimes I can feel a bit daunted by really impressive action sequences in movies i feel as if um yeah as if i'm i'm not being being quite quick enough for them or something sometimes um more more dialogue heavy films where nothing really happens like we did the before trilogy and that's a very sort of comfortable area for me just people walking around slowly (laughs) just just chatting then i think yes i i know where i am but um but you know, but that's why it's really wonderful to be here with you guys because you have so much insight into this genre. And um, don't get me wrong, there's there's some spy films that I've always really loved. So it's not that it's not that I'm uninterested. <laughs> you, you, I mean, you could tell you're a podcaster because you've uh, queued me up very well for my next question, which is sort of talking about your spy credentials because you mentioned you hadn't really had much interest in the genre too much before looking at Casino Royale, but take us back a little bit so did you, had you had much experience with i mean james bond did you like it at all before you explored it on the show uh james bond specifically or the spy genre james bond but then maybe the spy genre as a whole as well okay um well i had i had seen i had seen james bond films in the cinema but i hadn't ever kind of become 
too too kind of interested in a in an in-depth way let's let's put it that way and it did help me to appreciate it but one one aspect of the spy film genre that I think I already really liked was the comedy spy film which is you know in keeping with what we're doing tonight and one of the favorite films that I used to enjoy as a little girl watching was um, A Shot in the Dark oh nice which I probably my favorite spy film and um, I rewatched that the other night and I think it's just a masterclass in comedy it's so good the slapstick is incredible it's so beautifully directed and Peter Sellers is just you know like probably at his peak at that point so um yeah I love that that one and uh, I did go and see the first Austin Powers film I think at least a couple of times at the cinema when that first came out me and my friends were you know, we we really liked that. I, I was less keen on the second two, but I I liked that first one um, when it came out. So that was a lot of fun to see. So, you know, and this one fits in with that. So, you know, I just I just love a really good comedy film. I like that you mention A Shot in the Dark. And this movie actually plays the Pink Panther theme at one point. So it all it's all connected. Yes, it does, doesn't it? Yes, I spotted that. And also there's um uh people cutting off their thumbs in both films. That's true, yeah. <laughs> so maybe that's a deliberate link, who knows? <laughs> well, I, I think beautifully set up there. I, I suppose the, the last question I had to, to check your spy credentials before we talk about this week's film. You mentioned a couple of the comedy ones there. Is there is A Shot in the Dark the one you will always go back to, or is there any other ones you sort of hold near and dear? I think that's the one that I'd go back to, although the those first few Pink Panther ones, I did used to watch them a lot when I was younger but do you I mean would you count that's the thing this the spy genre is quite sprawling isn't it so mm. I suppose some of the Hitchcock ones fall in, into that category sure. don't they and mm -hmm. yeah and um would the nice guys fall into that category or is that too too much of a reach no. it's, it's kind of detective-y I find the nice yeah. guys detective-y yeah yeah no, I'd, I'd, I'd probably, I'd, if I had to pick one, I'd, it'd probably be a toss-up between, yeah, one of those early Pink Panther ones, Shot in the Dark, probably, or, or maybe Casino Royale. Now, actually, I'm quite a big fan of that one. So, yeah, obviously not counting the one we're doing tonight. Well, of course. Well, of course. Well, it's, <laughs> it's interesting that um, you sort of reach for spy comedies because I, I've genuinely struggled on this show for most of the spy comedies we've tackled so far. Not all of them, okay. but like nine tenths of them have been rough rides, I'd say. And maybe that's, that's our choice of film so far. There's, there's been a few that had tight moments of fun, but okay. I don't think there's been one that has made the knock list so far, Cam. Is that right? Uh, I mean, it depends what you consider a comedy because like Our Man Flint is very comedic. Um, mm -hmm. The first Spy Kids, very comedic. Um, but in terms of more like your broad comedy, no. Um, I was pretty pro Pink Panther Strikes Again. Um, yeah. So that one kind of counts. But beyond that, I I'm racking my brain of which other ones we've done. Uh, we did a lot of things like Liquidator, um, Jumpin' Jack Flash, Cloak and Dagger. Central Intelligence. Central Intelligence, yeah. Mm. Have you done Spy yet? No, the Melissa McCarthy. No, nope. that one's in the back pocket. I think that's uh, that's quite quite loved by the spy movie fans out there. So we're saving that one for a rainy day, I think. But uh... yeah, that one's that one's a great one, I reckon. So, well, as we said, it's a special day. It's Valentine's Day. We're here to celebrate 
We have the table set now. Every the guests are all here, Cam. The question is, what are we talking about? We are tackling 2018's "The Spy Who Dumped Me." That is our choice for Valentine's Day 2023. What a choice! Yeah, um, I don't know that it was the best choice for Valentine's Day, really. I guess that's debatable, <laughs> and we'll discuss it. But I got to be honest. Uh, one of the questions you asked me, or we asked each other, on our wrap up for 2022 episode is which movie surprised us the most. And this one is an early contender for me because this was not the movie that it seemed like marketing was selling me when I saw the trailers in theaters. No, I I, I, uh, I agree. I think we'll explore that in a minute. I think for those who aren't aware of the film, I'll just read you out the letterbox.com synopsis. The Spy Who Dumped Me. They got this. Audrey and Morgan, two 30-year-old best friends in Los Angeles, are thrust unexpectedly into an international conspiracy when Audrey's ex-boyfriend shows up at their apartment with a team of deadly assassins on his trail. Did it ever specify they were 30? I think I remember a throwaway comment about their age. Okay, it just seemed like a kind of an odd detail to throw out, because I don't remember that being any sort of factor in the actual story. Was there a 30th birthday? There was a few birthdays, weren't there? <laughs> there was yeah, like two or three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um hmm. well, we we kind of discussed this off air, but I hadn't seen this film nor had I really heard of this film particularly. I saw a trailer I think when it, before it came out, so I was aware of its existence, surely. But I have no background. Kat, had you ever heard of this film particularly before we covered it? Oh, I had heard of it. Yes, I'd been meaning to catch it for quite a while. I mean, this is the thing with I don't know I don't know what you guys think, but I felt as if when No Time to Die came out, I had infinite opportunities to see it everywhere for several months, whereas when something like The Spy Who Dumped Me comes along and it's, you know, spy film that's led by women, it's a little bit harder, you know, you've got to be in quite quick. It's not going to be at the cinema for months. So, I wasn't quite quick enough. <laughs> Well, I think it's a very interesting point because I think the same issue happened with the recent Charlie's Angels reboot. Mm -hmm. yes. That wasn't out for very long. Female-led, female-directed film as well, same as this film. Um, and again, very quickly disappeared. And if you look at box office returns for both, neither were particularly successful. Yeah. Yeah, and I really would have been interested to see that um, Charlie's Angels reboot as well. And I haven't, I haven't seen that yet either, so... All of these ones are, are very much ones that I'd, I'd want to see. So, so yeah, I'd, I'd definitely pay to see them at the cinema. So. I'd maybe warn you away from the Charlie's Angels reboot, but okay. that's, <laughs> that's for another day. That's for another day. Uh, Cam, tell me, sir, have you seen this film? No, um, I didn't see it. I remember the trailers for it, and I wasn't against watching it. I think it was like the reviews were kind of lukewarm. No one really turned out to see it, and so it was like, oh, okay, never mind. And honestly, I don't think I've ever met a human being who's watched this movie until this very moment. <laughs> How weird is that, though? Because it is a, an interesting factoid. So I, I put this out on Twitter about a week ago, I think, and just asked for, what did you think of this film? People's thoughts. Such a mixed bag of great, surprised me, trash. Mm. Don't watch it. Why are you talking about it? Why aren't you talking about Mission Impossible? Um, the <laughs> usual replies that we get to most things. And so, uh, yeah, interesting the reaction it got. But people have some people have seen it. it. It did get watched. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of that was like Netflix, though, or something like that. 
Yeah, it seems like a perfect movie that when it actually pops up on Netflix or Amazon or something like that, it would have gotten a lot of watches. But I've never had someone in my you know real life outside of the internet mention to <laughs> me, oh, I watched Spy Who Dumped Me the other night. You know, anything like that. No, I, I can't say I have. I, I don't think it's been one of those films that's been mentioned to us pre-me mentioning it. Yeah. Hmm. May, and maybe that's kind of to do with that. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about it, but the way it kind of mashes some different genres together maybe there's something about that that if something isn't easily put in a category sometimes maybe that stops it from being talked about quite as much for some reason well you think about like the 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 talent at least in the film itself of mila kunis kate mckinnon you put them on a poster that generally you'd think it would sell tickets totally yeah i would have thought yeah absolutely uh well cam i think it's time to play tinker taylor stoner spy and get into how The Spy Who Dumped Me was made. Yes. So the story starts with Susanna Fogel, who's the writer, director, and also producer of this film. Um, she wrote this movie with her co-writer, who I'll get to in a second. But Susanna Fogel started off in the late 2000s working in TV. She wrote for the show Joni and Susanna. Um, she wrote a film in 2014 called Life Partners with Leighton Meester and Gillian Jacobs. And then she um, created the TV show Chasing Life, which ran for about 34 episodes. Um, but she was working on that show quite consistently, directing. And she was kind of bouncing around TV for a while and moved ultimately into this movie. This was kind of her kind of big movie breakthrough. And this was a project that like she had co-written with David Iserson, who started off working like Saturday Night Live. He did like 20 episodes of Saturday Night Live, bounced around, did a lot of writing, producing on TV, shows that are very well known, shows like United States of Terra, New Girl, Mad Men, Mr. Robot. And he also did a TV movie in 2017 called Angry Angel. And then he moved from that project into this one. And from what I could see, Susanna Fogel, I found an interview with her where she was talking about it. A little vaguely, I wanted a little more details, but we may perhaps get those in the near future, um, that she wrote this about over a month in a hotel lobby with Iserson. And that as they were writing it, they were just having a blast. And when they finished, they realized, we want to make this ourselves versus probably more likely as to where they were in their careers at that point in time. It probably seemed kind of likely they would have to you know, sell the script off or something like that to someone else, but they became really interested in doing it themselves. It's interesting to hear that it was kind of like a startup between the two of them and there was a chemistry and they kind of put that together because I think this film hinges a lot on, on pairings of two people uh, and relationships and that sort of stuff. So that's interesting. And and you mentioned we might hear some more from, about David. Um, we actually have David Iserson joining us on the show this Friday to talk us all through writing this film, co-writing it with Susanna Fogel. So uh, yeah, join us on Friday for our chat with David. Yeah, definitely. And according to Susanna Fogel, she was inspired by, people are going to think spy movies. And yes, Bourne and Bond, um, Kingsman, John Wick, things like that did play a factor in the inspiration for this movie. But she really cited most commonly movies like Lethal Weapon and Beverly Hills Cop, which are more of those like 80s action comedies. And that's what really appealed to her was kind of capturing that tone between genuinely funny comedy with 
awesome action set pieces. And she said something that I wanted to bow down to her when I was reading her quotes about how like comedy uh, action movies, the action is just kind of like played off as very trivial and not particularly exciting and how she really wanted to break that with this movie. And I was like, that is so true. That has been one of my biggest complaints in comedy action films where they have just extended car chases that are not interesting to watch. I remember The Other Guys was really bad for that. No, I agree with you, Cam. And it's important, I think, and you'll probably get into this, to mention that um, they obviously sought out some caliber when it comes to stunts in this film because um, Mr. Gary Powell, stunt coordinator extraordinaire, second unit director extraordinaire, um, worked on this film. And I think that does show. Yeah, and he worked on the Bond franchise and the Bourne franchise, so he definitely was able to bring some authenticity to the action scenes that they were looking to achieve. Uh, again, like I was, I found it so refreshing to hear her talk about how they really wanted to like focus on making the action really work, versus I think a lot of the approaches to these types of movies is make them funny, and eh, the action can kind of write itself. Yeah. Well, it actually throws to something that Cap mentioned earlier about... Um... Charlie's Angels. Mm. Like I think the action in that is very like um, an afterthought. The the remake, yeah, yeah. Sorry, the uh, twenty nineteen remake. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like it felt very kind of phoned in, not exciting. Um, yeah, I appreciated this. And also the way they managed to incorporate the comedy with some of the action as well, like that sequence with the Uber driver and them in the car with him. Like they managed to. It doesn't have a kind of jarring switching from action to back to comedy. Sometimes they quite impressively fuse the two, don't they? Which is also quite fresh. Yeah, they do. And Fogel actually said they cut a lot of jokes from the script, just trying to find the right tonal balance between, you know, the page versus implementing all the action. And she knew from the very beginning she wanted Kate McKinnon as her co-lead. They'd worked briefly together on her first film, Life Partners, and uh, so she was the one that was locked in to be in this movie. And uh, Mila Kunis actually signed on because Kate McKinnon was on board and she really wanted to work with her. And uh, one of the key parts of McKinnon's hiring was, and anyone knows this who saw her on Saturday Night Live or her other work, she is a master improv artist. And so Susanna Fogel said they let her run wild. It was like, we are going to let Kate McKinnon play to her strengths. So there was never an attempt to rein her in with her improv. So a lot of what wound up in the movie is definitely Kate McKinnon. There's some pretty good uh, outtakes and bloopers on YouTube if you want to watch, where I, I think it's uh, Mila Kunis just dying because of Kate McKinnon's <laughs> jokes. <laughs> There's a moment in the movie I'll mention when we get to the review, but I was very, very obvious that uh, Mila Kunis did not know what she was going to say and was genuinely laughing because of being kind of caught off guard. <laughs> Isn't it fun when comedy is funny? No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> what, what a shocker. What a shocker. What's the least funny comedy we've done? Oh. Spy Kids 4, uh, if that that's counts. A, that's a really good really good question to involve Cat. Yeah, no kidding. Cat, <laughs> why don't you tell us what's the least funny film that we've done? <laughs> oh, I don't know. Central Intelligence, something like that. Okay, fair enough. Uh, And this movie was originally scheduled to open against the second Ant-Man movie. And Lionsgate announced that due to a phenomenal test screening, they were going to push it back a month to August. 
like right at the start of August. And uh, I'm really curious about that because, yeah, I don't think it worked out that well for the movie. So it ha- so this film had the phenomenal test screening, not Ant-Man 2. Correct. I mean, I'm, n- I'm not disagreeing with the feedback and we'll get to our thoughts on the film. But like, this is, we said it earlier, this is not a film that gets spoken about. No. Bizarre. <laughs> I thought so too. And so the movie had a budget of $40 million. Domestically, it did 33.6. Right? Like, that's a summer movie in August. What's up with that? International, 41.8 for a worldwide total of 75.3. So no one got fired, but like, it just sort of happened. Yeah. I thought that was just like, it's genuinely baffling because when you look at August, early August, like that's still pretty viable summer release territory for a movie, uh, especially in North America. And it has nothing to do with the quality of the movie, I would say. Because quality really doesn't matter when it comes to like a big release date. When you've got stars, when you've got a concept that gets across, people show up no matter what. There was something about maybe the marketing or something that just did not grab people. Okay. We'll we'll jump back into this in a second. But Kat, I'm interested to hear from you on this one. Do you have any idea why this might have been the case? Any insight? Well, I think um, the the image, the central image of the the marketing image is quite... I think it makes it look quite fun. Like you're going to go into a into a co- a comedy, an all out comedy. I think that when I first started watching it, that the sequence with Justin Thoreau at the beginning took me by surprise. I thought that the way it had been marketed didn't lead me to think it was going to open with such a you know played quite straight, very dazzling action sequence in that way, and. Do you think that there might be something about a poster where you see, you know, t- two women in, you know, very co- colourful outfits, one of them's very much known for being very funny on SNL, that people might think, oh, we're going into kind of, you know, Austin Powers territory here. It's going to be slapstick. It's going to be sort of, you know, a bit like Romy and Michelle. I mean, I love Romy and Michelle. It's great movie. But that kind of, yeah, incredible. Um, but a little bit influenced this i think but yeah so it's going to be that kind of level and when you know the people that really like action movies aren't going to get their fix of something really visually impressive in that way even though that is absolutely incorporated into this film so do you think maybe that sometimes people make assumptions if they see something being led by two women that doesn't look too serious in that way i think because you know we'll talk about the action but this movie does have a lot of pretty high caliber action in it and i don't think when you look at the marketing and say the posters and things like that it's going to draw in action fans yeah and i also question like you know say like women going out who want to see kind of a buddy hangout movie with these two stars does it then seem too action oriented like they're seeing them holding guns and stuff and they don't really want to see that like maybe it's a case where the movie's tone and vibe is specific but kind of like doesn't grab either audience i don't know yeah so they kind of cancel each other out in that way yeah yeah Yeah, i think that might be true i'm I'm watching the trailer without sound right now just playing on imdb um which is actually an interesting way of doing it because you could just sort of watch what what they're cutting with and like facial reactions and it's playing like a slapstick comedy yeah which is what i thought it was yeah that's it I, i i'm i'm beginning to wonder if it was really just a marketing fault here 
Yeah. I, I don't... Maybe marketing honestly looked at what they had and was like, we don't know how to sell exactly what this is. So they made it look like one thing that just didn't appeal to people. That's that's very often the case for lots of good movies. Yeah. Yeah. Potentially so. Yeah. It's re- really interesting. I, I watched the trailer for Thelma and Louise on YouTube the other night. And the original trailer for that one, they really try and sell it as just like a knockabout comedy. <laughs> you know, it's like, hey, they're off on the road. Just, oh, Thelma, you, you know, Thelma, they're trouble kind of thing. And you don't, you don't get any hint of some of the darker aspects of that movie. I mean, there are absolutely really funny scenes in Thelma and Louise, but like this one, actually, it fuses darkness with with some really good gags. Um, so. Maybe it's that thing sometimes people just are a bit afraid, afraid, you know, they're kind of like, no, we've got to stick, pick a genre for this one and we'll market it like that one and ignore the other stuff in it. And that will make people feel safer somehow. Yeah. And I I guess like Ant-Man was still going too. And people are like, you know what? I'm just going to spend my money on Ant-Man. I, I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So it landed at number 99 at the worldwide box office for the year between searching the John Cho film and Animal World. I had to look up Animal World. It's a Chinese action film, and apparently Michael Douglas co-starred in the movie. Um, so I had never heard of this film, so maybe one to add to the list. Um, the top three for the year, number one was Avengers Infinity War, number two was Black Panther, and number three was Jurassic Park Fallen Kingdom. Yay! <laughs> Franchises! Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, this movie won an award. Oh, uh huh. At the 2018 People's Choice Awards, oh, it won a favorite comedic movie. <laughs> oh, oh, which is kind of surprising <laughs> because I'll tell you what it beat: Blockers, Crazy Rich Asians, Love Simon, and Mamma Mia. Here we go again. Wow, what? Like <laughs> Crazy Rich Asians was like a huge hit. Mega hit. And Mamma Mia did pretty well for itself, too. Those were the people's choice, I think. <laughs> okay. That's... I is, is, So People's Choice Awards, I assume, by by its name, is chosen by the fans and listeners and viewers and whatnot. Oh, they're a joke. They're a total joke. But it's just surprising to me because usually what they'll do <laughs> is give the award to the most popular movie. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I would have thought like Crazy Rich Asians would have just run away with it easily. Or, or Mamma Mia, like a, a a push, maybe. Sure. Yeah, it's got a lot of big stars. Yeah. Why wouldn't that win? Yeah. Um, it's got Cher. Why wouldn't it win? Yeah. And Mila Kunis was nominated for Comedy Movie Star, but lost to Melissa McCarthy for Life of the Party. What? <laughs> what? It's in the water this year. Forget it, man. It's the People's Choice Awards. <laughs> okay. 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 <laughs> Um, things have worked out since just fine for Susanna Fogel. She wrote Booksmart for Olivia Wilde, that was a fantastic movie, and she also uh, co-wrote, I believe, Adam's Family too, and is consistently working since. Uh, and um, she did say that uh, she had a sequel idea for this movie. She said, "We would love to write one. We have an idea ready to go when permission is granted." I mean. Yeah, I could see a sequel to this easily. It, like that, there's there's a lot there. There's a lot left on the page, I think, to uh, to take a look at. Uh, okay, surprising history for this film. I was baffled by some of those choices, especially the People's Choice Awards. But like, <laughs> I we'll we'll come back to this. I think towards the end. But I'm just nothing's really ma- making sense in my head right now. 
I'm baffled that this is a like a forty million dollar movie, and it like can't hit forty million at the box office. That is like circumstances well beyond anything to do with measuring quality or anything. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, that, that's not for us to uh, to change. It is as it is, I suppose. Um, but we're at that point now. I think we should smash our phones, head to Vienna. Let's talk about the spy who dumped me. Kat, you have you know accepted your mission. You've come aboard. We want to hear from you. What do you think of The Spy Who Dumped Me? I really enjoyed this film. I thought yeah. that Yeah. I thought that the dialogue was really great. I, I think you could tell that everyone had worked really hard on that script. Filled with detail. They take so much care over showing you um, this friendship between Morgan and Audrey. And, you know, by the end of the movie, you know quite a lot about the two of them, which is exactly what you want when you're you're watching a really good buddy comedy. And, yeah, the way it fused the action sequences with the comedy, I thought was really ambitious and bold. But at the same time, I liked the way, you know, like the, the scene where they try and steal the car and they can't they can't drive a stick and, you know, they kind of have to abort the mission. That's the thing. I, I like I like it when there's action in movies where it doesn't require the characters to kind of snap into a completely different persona in order to, you know, execute the action. I, I really like the way they were able to retain, you know, their kind of, um, you know, because if you're learning how to be spies, you're not going to be fantastic at it from the get-go. So you should be able to see those fumbles. Uh, I thought that was really great. Uh Occasionally, I thought that maybe there was a little bit of a a kind of mismatch between you'd have these lovely sort of funny, tender scenes between the girls sort of saying, you know, can we take a moment, please, to appreciate you and and being so affectionate to one another and each of their vulnerabilities about being a little bit much or, you know, I never finish anything. I thought all of that was wonderful. But then some occasionally there'd be a moment like when the Uber driver um, dies where <laughs> they'd run they, they'd run away from the scene and just gonna go thanks thanks Lucas five stars and no one had sort of you know give a sort of second second thought to the fact that he died and and while I totally get that we have to suspend all of our sort of you know realism and and all of that for a movie like this that's the the thing was sometimes you'd have these bit lovely bits of realism between the two women, but then they'd have moments where neither of them, you know, seemed to care that somebody totally innocent had had to be killed in a moment. And occasionally I thought maybe that jarred a little bit. To, 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 I agree because there's a moment right at the end and spoilers, I suppose. Well, there's always spoilers on this show, but uh, Mila Kunis's character and her love interest by the end of the film are having a little a little moment together. And if you think about it, they're standing on top of two dead bodies. (laughs) (laughs) Happy Valentine's Day, folks. Yeah. Maybe that's how spies do it. I don't know. Completely. And um, also another another little criticism was that I didn't think that um, the men were that interesting, actually, in terms of their characterization. I thought the Justin Theroux's character and um, also Sebastian maybe could have been could have been a little bit more fully fleshed out you know but maybe maybe that worked in terms of highlighting the the kind of the bond between the women i don't know what do you guys think i'll, I'll take underwritten men 
uh, any day of the week, personally. <laughs> at the exchange of having a well-written female characters, after two and a half years at this point of talking about spy films, I, I think the balance of the scales needs a, a little bit of a shift. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, like, underwritten is fine because there's so many movies, male-driven movies, where the female character is underwritten. I think it's more important that, like, they really pop on screen, even if they're kind of one-dimensional. And I don't know that these two guys really did. Yeah, I agree. What are you saying? Look at Justin Theroux. I mean, just look at the guy. He's <laughs> way more fun in Charlie's Angels 2. Yeah, sure. There's not, like, what was that film he was referencing in Charlie's Angels 2? Firestarter. I thought it was Cape Fear, wasn't it, or something? Oh, that too, yeah. Yeah. He's also much more fun in um, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. Mm-hmm. I like him in that, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> not to bring it back to Romeo and Michelle all the time. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine, that's fine. But you you say you were pleasantly surprised by it, Kat, I guess. Oh, yeah, completely. I thought that it had um, all kinds of little bits of very funny dialogue. It's really difficult to write funny dialogue. It's, it's all There's so many good lines in this. If you look up, you know, funny quotes from this movie, there's oh, just loads to choose from. And there's even some of the side characters, like Tess is such a wonderful character in this one, just the friend that comes over and, you know, you guys make such surprising couples. Like, all of that stuff is so <laughs> wonderful. She's in the end credits as well, making all of these backhanded comments. That, you know, even just like, characters like that that don't have that much screen time, still really well written. Very rich. We've all got a Tess in our lives, I think. We really do, don't we? <laughs> I call him Scott. My, 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 yeah, mine is Cam. Thank you. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, uh, speaking of Cam, why don't you tell us what you think about the film, buddy? Well, I kind of hinted at it earlier, basically said it right out. Uh, this movie completely surprised me because I had absolutely no idea, it seems, what it was. I got the impression from seeing the trailers that it was kind of a goofball romantic comedy that was basically my takeaway from all of the marketing for this movie and i was genuinely shocked when there was like violent like action scenes with like blood and stuff and people were dropping the f-bomb and i actually paused it because i was like is this r-rated i thought this was like a pg-13 kind of like silly movie i didn't realize this was kind of hard-edged and uh you know there was like testicles in the movie there was like gore and it genuinely stunned me. Like, that was not what I thought this movie was. And uh, I think for me, like, the central relationship is crucial to this movie working. And I think what makes it work really well is that Kate McKinnon and Mila Kunis are two very different type of actresses. Like, Kate McKinnon is just this whirling dervish of comedic inspiration. And Mila Kunis is more of, like, almost like a traditional movie star type. Like, you could see her playing, like, Julia Roberts-like roles if she'd been born earlier. And the way those two blend together is really interesting because it's not like they're writing very similar characters, putting them next to each other, and it just kind of makes sense. Here I like that they feel very different, but you never have manufactured moments of them getting angry at each other, one storming away. They are together through the entirety of the movie, but it never feels stagnant or dull to watch this kind of continuing relationship. So in terms of that, I really enjoyed just the journey of the movie. Um, I also enjo- enjoyed like how ambitious some of the action is. There is better action here than some of the spy movies we've covered. Like some of the full-on you know, action spy films that have come out in the last handful of years that we've talked about on this show had inferior action to what's going on in this movie. 
there's like a moment where um Sebastian, played by Sam Hewen, does like this like parkour move over top of like a gymnast mat and like takes out a group of guys. And I was like, that was awesome. Like I don't see moves like that that much fun in some of these movies. So in those regards, I was sort of in favor of the movie. I think where I had a couple issues was um it's a little overlong. I think it wears out its welcome and I think it loses some of its charm when it starts focusing on plot because the plot of this movie I mean I think anyone could pretty much recite the plot without having seen the movie as soon as you say there's a disk drive with you know bad things on it people get it and I think this movie probably should have been a little faster paced in the back half and sometimes I did wonder if it went a little too far afield with some of the loopier kind of comic moments like, when she's citing stuff like Lethal Weapon or Beverly Hills Cop, that's a pretty specific tone, and they don't get too outrageous. And I sometimes felt like this movie kind of wasn't quite on mark. But overall, all that said, I walked out kind of enjoying the movie. I am... Um, it's interesting, because I, I had my dates mixed up. So I watched this about a week ago, <laughs> thinking yeah. that we were covering it a week ago. And then I went back today for my second watch. I had like a week apart. And in between that, I we I watched another film and we recorded a review for that film. Uh, and all I could think about during that film was The Spy Who Dumped Me. Something about this film just clicked in my head. I don't know, like, I, I'm not the most eloquent of people. I sometimes have trouble sort of outputting my thoughts on films, which is weird for having a film podcast. <laughs> but I, I think ultimately it, it charmed me. I think the chemistry between Mila Kunis and Kate McKinnon is spot on. I don't know how they rocked it, but they rock every second they're together. And when they're together, this film is fantastic. Cam's right when the plot comes up. Gets a bit murky. Sure, it's a bit long. But I'll take that if I can have lead females in my spy films of this caliber. Please give me this every week. Please. <laughs> Yay. I... Yeah, I, I, I could, I could throw some nitpicks at everyone's way, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I think overall, the action's great. I think the story, I think the actual concept itself, and I can understand why there might be sequels or there could be sequels potentially in the works, because I think the actual baseline story, the fish out of water thing, works. I think that sort of works in the spy realm. It's been done before, but it's being done by two very good leads, and that's why it sort of is very grounded. And I think this film works best. When they're sort of fumbling through things, like that we mentioned the taxi chase earlier on, there's like the stuff in the restaurant where a guy gets killed in a fondue bath. Like, what a cool death. <laughs> Just a little thing like that. Yeah, badass. He killed him in cheese fondue. I'll take that. That's great. Um, a little bit later on, when they become like master spies all of a sudden, you know, Mila Kunis is like outdoing Justin Theroux, who's been a spy for a long, long, long time. I sort of raise an eyebrow, but. <laughs> Overall, yeah, great. Please more. I'll, 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 yeah, I'll, I'll do it in the Oliver Twist. But, you know, please, sir, can I have some more? Well, I don't know if you're going to get that sequel, but no. I mean, I think the way the movie ends, it's an entirely viable concept to continue these, you know, two actresses and these characters. Yeah, you put like Kate McKinnon annoying Gillian Anderson. Perfect. Yeah, Gillian Anderson a little underused. Would have liked more of her. Well, let's talk about the things that we did like about this film. It sounds like there is a lot. Kat, you're up first. Now, I'm actually quite fascinated to ask you because, you know, you, aside from doing your podcast, you are a writer as well. And I, I kind of want to know 
from a story point of view, and the, I think the key thing about this film is the two leads and their camaraderie. Like, what are your thoughts on that, and why does why do you think it works so well? I think because because you get a sense of the history between these two. There's something about the way they always trust one another, even though they've been told to trust no one. There's never any, you know, like right from one of the earliest scenes, you see Mila Kunis um, give Kate McKinnon her phone to, you know, just sort of look something up on it. And that's when she sends the ex the the text about how they're going to burn his stuff. And I was mm-hmm. thinking just even in that moment, the kind of gesture of handing her the phone, you get this sense of this incredible intimacy between people and how all of this stuff can be whirling around them. And the fact that the two of them will have that bond they'll never question it they'll you know put themselves in very dangerous situations for one another i think it kind of peaks with that scene where they're being tortured and they're listing all the things that they know about each other all these (laughs) really funny things um you know and um I think that that's why it works because actually some of the twists and turns to the narrative I did occasionally I'd, I'd kind of lose the thread but then you'd, you'd sort of realise that as long as you were being given these scenes between the two of them these quite quiet scenes where they'd um, you know talk about what was going on that would always keep you going and kind of retain your interest which is actually I think maybe why the final part is even though it's very dramatic it's not it doesn't to me feel quite as strong as some of the other bits of the film because they do have a little bit less time those two together in that kind of way so i think yeah you're just you're invested in even though all of these things are happening with regards to you know what's happening with the drive this that the other ultimately it's kind of about morgan talking about this thing of you know him saying to her has anyone ever told you you're a bit much and her kind of thinking about that and grappling with that and you know only my parents and you think that I'm not it's because everyone else is boring that's why that in all of those things and the thing of Mila Kunis's character you know I never finish anything it's actually it boils down to really quite personal things that most of us can relate to these aren't really high stakes about you know a person this they're not trying to kind of avenge something that happened to them you know these are these are things that we can all relate to i think and i think that's the kind of secret to it it's it's ordinariness is a brilliant aspect to it and i mean ordinariness in the sense of something that you know it it taps into something quite human i think i like that neither one of them is the weak link either because a, a different movie would play say Kate McKinnon, she's eccentric. So suddenly you'd have her like crashing through the scenery while Mila Kunis is trying to do something. And I like that each of them, especially when you get to that ending, is independently doing their own thing. Kate McKinnon is involved in like an acrobat fight. Um, Mila Kunis is dealing with the Justin Thoreau stuff. And it's not like one needs to be saved by the other. It's like they're both capable of handling their own missions. But it doesn't feel like they're also being created as comic book superheroes like they both are fallible people through the course of the movie it's just that they are both capable of rising the occasion yes i think that's that's right and that that taps into some because sometimes i have a little bit of a um bit of an issue with this idea that in order to have women in films they've always got to portray really strong characters so you know because men are just allowed to be you know just their their own person in movies whereas you know this idea that a woman in a movie has always got to be a symbol of empowerment and you think no you know a film like this is really good in the sense that they both do develop they both do as you say show their own individual talents but 
they're allowed to be human, you know, and and have their weaknesses and have the things that they're grappling with, like everyone else, and that's fantastic. Yeah, they they both feel like three dimensional characters. They both have flaws. And they both have lives that they're living, and they and and. I think it's just great to see a, such a strong relationship between the two that's never called into question, like Cam said earlier. Like they're never having fights or anything like that. Really, they are they they have each other's backs, and you you immediately get behind them because they get behind each other. Um, but we're in the like section, so Cam, I, I sort of I cued you up with something, but I want to hear from you. Is there a, a section of the film, a character, a thing you want to focus on that you really liked about this film? Well, one thing I've really brought up Tess. I really like the character of Tess, but also I really like. Uh... Morgan's parents. I think that's a lovely thing to put into the mix. Again, I think quite often the reason why someone might have a character a bit like Morgan's might, you know, in a in a more cliched movie, they might put it down to her having been, you know, neglected as a child and not given enough attention. And the fact that she has incredibly loving parents and she <laughs> sort of tells them everything is quite a nice sort of refreshing, refreshing twist. And I just find the scene where her dad's on the exercise bike going, have you killed someone? Don't worry, you can tell me. I'll let you know where you can go. You know who's handsome Woody Harrelson? You can think it's really quite convincing uh, in its own way, sort of portrayal of someone having a really close, informal relationship with their parents. It's, you know, something that she's very lucky to have there. And yeah, I really like them as characters. It's a really nice, again, a lovely detail of the film. You come think, oh, when they come on, you think, oh yeah, this is a good scene. They're great, you know characters well so many of these types of movies or other kind of buddy comedy things when one character is very eccentric and goofy so much of the arc is well i've never had anyone i could you know look to i never had a real friend and i like that kate mckinnon has a built-in support network she's doing okay (laughs) it's just that she you know obviously has a very close relationship with uh, mila kunis's character i think that really is a smart move and kind of uh, subverts the common common trope for writing kind of the very outlandish friend character i i um it's, it's fun that the film takes a, a little shot at her relationship with her parents but i have the exact same relationship with mine okay i'm it's not even set up of a joke that's i i'm genuinely very close with my parents um i i, I could give an example but like it, it's a bit weird so i probably <laughs> won't um yeah i'm very close with my mum as well it is all quite like that <laughs> do your parents look like paul reiser and jane Curtin? If they're listening, yes, you you both do. <laughs> um, they're not listening. Don't worry. No, they they don't care. Um, no, I, I I suppose I'll, I'll I can't set it up and not pay it off. I I guess um, when I was a teenager, there's a very important thing that you do with another person, usually around that age. And I was like, uh, hey, uh, mum and dad, I'm going to be doing this. Uh, just so you know, and they're like, we support you. Here's all the information you need, and it was all very uh, lovely. And uh, and that's how Spy Hearts was born. Starting a podcast, yeah. one of the key parts <laughs> in anyone's life. <laughs> I'll leave the rest to your imagination, folks. Enjoy. <laughs> um, well, what about you, Cam? <laughs> I actually really liked Ivana Sokno um, as the villain, um, Natea, or however they pronounced it throughout the course of the movie. She had a very uh, difficult <laughs> yeah. to pronounce name. But I thought this like gymnast villain was fantastic you know introduced very much like a bond assassin you know at work basically and then gets the call and kills the person right next to her it takes off in a sports car but is consistently funny but also very dangerous and physically capable like they have some really cool stunts this character does her fight with kate mckinnon at the end is fun to watch um she gets to look like a borg 
from Star Trek for some reason. That was uh, weird. That was really that weird. That was weird. <laughs> was it supposed to be like a Borg look, do you think? Well, to us nerds, maybe, yes. It's very specifically like Borg-like, though. I'll, I'll put a picture up on social media. You can decide whether it's Borg-like or not. Yeah. But I thought, like, we have seen a lot of spy movies with boring villains. Like, villains with it. Now, if you ask me who was the villain of certain movies, I would not be able to tell you. But I thought she was really fantastic. And way more memorable, I thought, as an adversary than, like, Justin Theroux's character. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, that's mostly because he's dead. Well, so was she by the end. That's very true. That's very true. Actually, he didn't die. He lived. He got arrested. No, but he was dead for most of the film. Oh, true. Yes. Hmm. Uh, no, she's very memorable, and uh, yeah, the, the the Borg outfit definitely stands out at the end. But and she also has like a moment of fun where she sees their relationship as they're sharing all their secrets in the interrogation slash trampolining slash gymnastics scene. There's a lot going on in that scene, guys. So you'll have to watch it to find out. But uh, yeah, like she, she kind of is curious as to how you can have such a friendship, and there's like a inside her, there's like a a, a call for that. She longs for that relationship that they have. And I was really thrown when she got impaled, like, graphically at the end of the movie. It's like, that is not something I expected to see in this film. Even after, like, you know, an hour and 45 minutes of gunfights and martial arts. Because you do see some of the scenes from her perspective, like that one where she's told to look out for two American girls and she's scanning around <laughs> and she sees one of them vomiting and one of them, like, doing a pole dancing thing with the <laughs> statue and you sort of see her sighing in exasperation and... Yeah, I, I found her death quite surprising in that way too, because you've been given enough moments, hadn't you, of feeling um, kind of empathy with her in a, in, in a quiet way, you know what I mean, So yeah, for it to feel quite shocking. She reminded me a little bit of Sofia Butello in Kingsman, and mm. uh, you know, the director slash co-writer of this movie did reference Kingsman as a movie that they really appreciated for its, I guess, ability to balance kind of comedy with kind of over-the-top action. And this character reminded me a lot of that uh, blade-legged um, assassin in that movie. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And, and Sophia was great in uh, in Kingsman. If if we're talking about likes, I kind of want to just talk about the there's like a, there's like a concept inside of here. Obviously, there's the fish out of water stuff that I quite like, but there's also a spy movie from the perspective of I don't want to say the Bond girl because they become spies by the end. Mm. But you think of the, the Mila Kunis starts off this film as the spy's girlfriend, the spy who dumped me, um, and you're sort of seeing the spy world from the perspective of the pussy galores, the you know all, all that, uh, and you're seeing that world from their perspective. And I really liked actually experiencing it that way, and I, I thought that was quite a refreshing take on what could be. I mean, let's face it, the actual like story of this, the actual machinations of the spy plot are, are very uh, predictable, you know, cut and paste from most spy films. Mila Kunis is, is an interesting performer because she's so, she's so incredibly beautiful, but she manages actually... I've seen her in a few things. I think it's um, Forgetting Sarah Marshall... And also uh, Friends with Benefits, is it? And I think in, in both movies, she plays people that have been dumped. And then again in this one. And she manages, even though, even though, you know, she, she's, she's so, she's so beautiful. She's, she does manage to kind of convey that sort of thing of someone being quite vulnerable and, you know, 
inclined maybe to kind of feel a bit sort of down when something like this happens and i think that she she conveys that all the way through the movie actually of someone that's been quite hurt and the way you feel in the aftermath of something like that and i think that's quite important to the film as well because that's the i mean it says it in the title doesn't it it's sort of the whole the whole thing is in the in that period of time when someone's reeling after someone's been dumped by text you know maybe that in some ways is what's giving her the courage to do what she's doing is that that moment where you feel just you know like your feelings have been crashed against the rocks you know but i think she conveys that really well i did struggle a little bit to just buy the coupling of her and justin Thoreau in this movie i was like i don't know that i see this as much bit of an age difference <laughs> that's the thing mila kunis to me looks like eternally young whereas like justin Thoreau, he you know he looks i mean he looks amazing, better than I'll ever look on screen, but like he still looks more aged to me in this movie. It was kind of a combo where I was like, huh, don't know if I see this. Although, I mean, if you're going to hire someone to play a Jason Bourne-like assassin, Justin Thoreau makes a lot of sense. And it's nice to see him get another turn in a spy film that isn't Charlie's Angels 2. Yeah. Um, wasn't he? He's in Rogue One, isn't he? In like one shot? Maybe. But he gets that really cool intro that Kat mentioned earlier, the sort of Jason Bourne style in the, the in the market. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. And he has that great moment diving out the window on top of the truck. Yeah, fantastic. I just remembered it wasn't uh, Rogue One. It was uh, Last uh, Jedi. He's quite a chameleon, is Justin Theroux. He appears in the first series of Sex and the City playing a successful author. And then again in the second series playing a different successful author. <laughs> <laughs> they just used him twice in quick succession. And I have to say, I think I'd seen the series a couple of times before I, I noticed that it was the same actor, actually. So um, so he manages to somehow, to somehow, yeah, just put on a different hat and he's a different person. So he's, he's one of those actors. Was he wearing his glasses in one of those performances? Because he used to he wear He was the, indeed, yes. Yeah, the black room glasses? Yes, I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just had longer hair in one and then shorter hair with with the glasses that you mentioned. So, yeah, that was the trick. <laughs> That's classic Thoreau right there. Yeah. <laughs> um, the only other thing I want to tip my hat to in terms of likes, uh, we've mentioned it briefly, is is the fact that the comedy works in this film. I think it's genuinely funny. I The the hijacking of the car, I, I rip-rolled with laughter both times. I, it, it baffles me that people don't know how to drive stick, but that's just the thing I think almost everyone does here in the UK if you drive a car. Um, and that's probably even why it's funny, but that, that scene just works for me every time. But there's so many little moments, even just little bits of dialogue, and uh, Cam mentioned obviously Kate McKinnon trying to crack Mila Kunis up. You can definitely tell there was a lot of fun being had on set. There's the line where they're just traveling, and she mentions the teenage magician who just disappeared. And it's this bizarre little like off-the-cuff line. You can tell that Mila Kunis didn't know where that was going, and her laugh is genuine. And there's a fair number of moments like that where Kate McKinnon is clearly just riffing. So I, I really like I really like the thing about Edward Snowden being really into Scar. When the whole thing was going down, I kept thinking, why is no one talking about how Snowden is really into Scar? I really like that line. I, I watched her on... Um comedians in cars getting coffee and her like spontaneous wit was well it, it shows through in this so it makes sense that she was just you know well scatting her way through the film with jokes and sometimes like a movie can suffer with someone just kind of doing improv because you can feel the filmmakers being like 
we don't have faith in our material, just improv something. It'll all be great. There's a lot of bad Melissa McCarthy movies that are really fraught with that kind of thing. And I think this is a perfect case of a director who knows exactly how to use Kate McKinnon. Because I I thought also of like... Kate McKinnon was fantastic in the 2016 Ghostbusters. Yeah, not during that. A movie that was very messy. Uh, you could tell it had been reshot multiple times. It had a lot of problems. But Kate McKinnon was very honed in and had a very sp- a specific persona in that movie. And was really one of the few to really walk out, I think, shining from a movie. That I didn't dislike the movie overly, but it was very, very messy. I completely agree. When I saw that, I completely fell in love with her. I thought that she was the she was the star of that really and the thing that you took away from it it's really stole the show i was actually a bit worried because i've actually had not bad experiences with kate mckinnon i've never met her i'm sure she's lovely <laughs> but um just like her appearances in on some tv shows and, and films i've been like it's not worked for me so i see her and i think oh no this isn't gonna quite click but this perfect nailed delivery great stuff it's a bummer that her two big vehicles were Ghostbusters and this, which did not do particularly great business, because it's someone who I would like to see doing more, you know, A-list work. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. And the only other thing I had down for likes, I just want to make a quick shout out, is it's nice to see old people being spies again, because we've got the parents, <laughs> the fake parents. Connective tissue between cloak and dagger, trench coat, and now this, we've got old people spies. I like it. And I liked um, Fred Melamed as posing as, you know, Roger, the family friend of Kate McKinnon's parents. Um, Mm. He's very funny. I've seen him in many things. He was really good and a serious man. And just that moment where he starts, like, massaging Kate McKinnon's shoulders and just the way she plays off of that, very funny. (laughs) Uh, I heard that you like pot. Mm. Yes. Roasts. Uh, and just as a side note, people, if you want something fun, we mentioned the cab driver earlier. In, the, in there's one scene in the film where there's a guy. Uh, the actor's name is Kev Adams. Uh, the Luke Lucas is the name of the driver. If you want something funny, basically he's apparently he's high whilst he's driving the vehicle. Look him up on IMDb. He looks like he's off his face. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, you could do that in your spare time. He looks like he's just, he's having the blast at the premiere of some sort of film, and he has got some bug eyes right now. It's its crazy. Oh, wow. That photo is something else on IMDb. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> well, then. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Calling all agents. Independent podcasting, much like the spy game, requires considerable resources. Whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or, of course, constructing a top-secret volcano lair, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Saddle up, partner. Because we're taking a trip into the Wild West with John Wayne and Dean Martin for 1959's Rio Bravo. Yeehaw! And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. Well, folks, they say fear is an illusion. 
But we fear talking about the dislikes of this film, uh, but we need to do it. So let's talk about things we didn't like with The Spy Who Dumped Me. Kat, I'm throwing it to you. Something you didn't quite like. Uh, well, so I've already said that I think that the, maybe the, the, the men, in the, I thought that Sebastian in particular, considering how sort of central he is, considering that we um, have Audrey having that little moment with him at the end of the movie, I think he could have been maybe a bit more charismatic. Uh, something about him where you think that Audrey is going to go on to have a better relationship maybe than the one that she had with Drew. And yeah, the fact that it sort of starts with him kind of talking about how he watched her with Drew originally when they first got together. I don't know, that's all it's all a little bit kind of weird. <laughs> and, but and But it might not be weird if maybe there was enough kind of charm coming from him. But the fact that that doesn't kind of quite the chemistry between them doesn't quite come off i i think so so in the end having that as as a point that we're kind of led to at the end of the movie in the end i thought oh maybe you didn't really need that actually you didn't really need the kiss between them because i don't think we're invested enough in that relationship it could have just gone gone straight to the girls you know just going off into the sunset together embracing their friendship so yeah that was something that i didn't like that much yeah, I didn't really buy into it as a romance that I like. It was hard to care about because yeah, there wasn't yeah. a massive amount of chemistry, and I know nothing really about this actor, Sam Hewen. Um, I don't watch some of his TV work, so it was basically like he came across often as kind of just like a bit of a block of wood in this movie with not a heck of a lot of character, like. When he was like the guy in the van, I was like, oh, that's kind of funny. I thought of True Lies, you know, the Tom Arnold character. Mm -hmm. Him and um, Grant Heslov were always like stuck in the van and complaining about it. Like I thought that was kind of a funny conceit. But then the movie just plays him very much as a straightforward action hero guy. And eh, eh, like, yeah, it didn't really work particularly well for me. It's interesting because I said about I tweeted out about this film and it got quite a lot of replies. A large swathe of those people were Sam Hewen fans Ooh. who uh, very much very much like Sam Hewen, which is fine. <laughs> He's a, I, easy on the eye, that man. I'll tell you that much. Um, but one thing that they were pushing a lot for was Sam to be James Bond. Hmm. So I'm going to throw the question out to everyone here. If, uh, you know, Eon held a press conference tomorrow and they said, oh, your new James Bond is Sam Hewen. What, what, do you, what do you guys think about it? I mean, I'd need to see him in, in some other things because maybe it was just something to do with the way he was scripted here or directed and the chemistry between him and Mila Kunis. Uh, but I don't know. I I think Bond should maybe be a little bit rougher around the edges, perhaps. What do you think, Cam? Yeah. Uh, well, it's a case where I'm judging him off of this movie and he's not great in this movie. But like I was saying, Justin Theroux didn't really work that much for me in this movie. But like he's incredible in something like Mulholland Drive. Mm. So maybe if I saw Sam Hewen in something else, I'd be like, oh, yeah, this guy's got it. And I'm sure that there's movies, you know, that Pierce Brosnan made, that Daniel Craig made. I don't recall walking out of, you know, Laura Croft Tomb Raider being like, give that man the James Bond job. <laughs> so, uh, I, I don't know. I'm not going to uh, determine his fate based on one movie. So, yeah, I don't know. 
So you, you both went to uh, like mid answer there, just in case he does turn out to be Bond, and then you can't be held accountable for the quotes. I like what you did. There. I don't want the Sam Hewen fans coming after me. I apologize to all of you. I will soon be one of you. Is, is it is it Sam Hugh fans? We're changing the show to Sam Hards from this day forward. Yeah. Wouldn't it be Hugh and Hart? Hugh Hards? No. Okay. No, that works. Um. Well, I, I'm not going to give my answer on that question. I'll save that for another day. Cam, something you disliked? Yeah, I said it up front. I think the pacing and the overly plotty nature really drags the movie down for the back half. Um, there's a lot of stuff to do with that, with the you know the jump drive and whatever else. And I just, I could feel the energy deflating. It reminded me actually of a movie we covered recently, The Recruit. Where the first like hour I was like really into the movie and you know some of the ideas it was introducing and then the back hour I was just like okay like what you're getting across isn't interesting enough to me to drag it out this long and that's kind of how I felt here I was just like waiting to get to the big finale because I thought once you had you know Kate McKinnon facing off against the gymnast and moments like that the fun was back but it just felt like they were spending a little too much time obsessing over plot details. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think it was one of the things I pulled out. It was one of the things I disliked as well. It it's overlong. I don't like it that they become hyper like confident and, and capable right at the end. Whereas the fun was in them learning and and sort of the fish out of water stuff. They yeah, when Mila Kunis is out out working Justin Thoreau's Drew. I think that you could have written that differently where they were just being smart but not better spies than him. They out spy him in something. Strange choice. But yeah, I don't think it needed to be two hours. I think it could have been a bit shorter and, and punchier. Well, you know what happens in the back half? That's when the Sam Hewen love story really starts to take effect. And so I, I can't help but notice when I look at my notes in front of me, I always put little asterisks next to kind of the key things I want to bring up on the show or moments that jump out at me. They're almost all in the first half. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think for me, I... The Edward Snowden of it all dates it very much. That was weird. It's weird hearing it. Yeah, that's a strange choice. Uh, probably a strange choice then, even stranger now. Should they have gotten Joseph Gordon-Levitt to play that role? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> it would sure. have been great. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. that would have worked. Um, my dislike is more plot-based because I've sort of, I, I agree with Cam. Cam's, it was also my choice. We haven't once mentioned Gillian Anderson. And that's the dislike. Also, Hassan uh, Minhaj, I believe that's how you pronounce him, his name. Um, he plays a good guy, then becomes a villain, Duffer. That's just kind of in the back half as well. It's just a bit meh. But you've got Gillian Anderson in your film. And I feel like somehow you squander it because I, I want to see like more of a dynamic performance there. And it's not on her. It's, I think it's just on the fact that how they use her is a shame. Um, I just didn't think that we'd get this far and, and not talk about Gillian Anderson. I think because of how the film handles her, that's where the dislike comes from. It feels like she would have been used quite a bit more had there been like a sequel because then they would be working mm -hmm. with her or something. Like here, there's. did you find it confusing at a certain point who was working for who? Yeah. Like who was the bad guy? Who like was Duffer... Who... who who was the overarching villain in this? Like there was some sort of company they kept referring to that I have no idea what they are. Yeah, they said Highland a lot, and that kind of began to confuse me. Um, yeah, 
especially when you consider that like Sam Hewen is known for like Outlander as well. Like yeah, that's confusing. This is Highland Outland. Yeah, mm. not that that's his fault. There's some good quotes surrounding um the Julian Ames thing that um that that this is the Beyonce of the government. I have so much respect for you that it is circled round to objectification. That's a very good line. <laughs> <laughs> that that feels like a like a riff from her on set and it's yeah. that was a funny line. It was a great yeah, line. Very good. And they referred to her as Judy Dench at one point as well. <laughs> yeah. Mm. <laughs> I, I I I love seeing Julian Anderson. I think it's like the first time she's ever been on the show, which is great. Um I just like I wanted to see more of Julian Anderson. If you're gonna have her in the film, if you're gonna cast someone in the sort of like M air quotes role, do more with them or cast someone that isn't such a big name. Right, because at least the Snowden actor wasn't someone who was like a celeb cameo. Mm, exactly, exactly. Uh, well, I think before we go to the knock list, let's tackle any final uh, notes. I've got a couple. Uh, Kat, do you have any final notes? Um, well, did you agree that mm by the Crash Test Dummies would indeed have been the worst song on that jukebox? How, how do we feel about that 90s classic? There's so much worse out there. I think so. <laughs> Because I had that note as well about, like, could we come up with, like, what's the worst song to hear on a jukebox? I also had the same note. So our, our, our form of comedy is, is in sync, everyone. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now I'm racking my brain. Like, what is the worst one? Like, what is something when you hear it on a jukebox, you would just cringe? Are you familiar with the Mr. Blobby song? No, I'm not. Are you, Scott? No. I am, and I was almost in the music video for that. Oh, wow. oh really? They filmed it next to my uncle's house. They had a casting called "It's One of Kids" in the background, and uh, I didn't get picked. Oh, well, that's sad. Yeah. Mm. I didn't get my time, and Mr. Blobby, <laughs> I've been robbed. <laughs> the film also starts with uh, "A Wind of Change" by the Scorpions, which um which used to be on the radio all the time in the 90s. So they, they're, they're really wheeling out the, the 90s classics in this movie, aren't they? Yeah. I was thinking of like what was the worst song of the 90s for me because I, I wrote this question down. I had a couple of answers because they mentioned Mumbo Number no. 5. Sure. Which is an easy one. But I think Mumbo Number no. 5 is kind of fun a couple of times. Well, it's not a... Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I, don't yeah. mind, um, I, I don't mind um, 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 um. Right. I think Justin Thoreau singing that song is maybe his best moment in the movie, actually, singing the bit Whoa, of the... Yeah, there was this kid who... <laughs> what about Eiffel 65 and that blue da-da, beep, da-da, whatever? Oh, Cam, don't say it like you don't know the words. <laughs> <laughs> that one was pretty awful. Eiffel 65 with blue da dee da die Yeah, that... Uh... That's not a good one. I, I also get worried because like... The Venga bus. Yeah. The Venga... I was thinking like dates. The Venga boys is pretty bad. Yeah. Barbie girl is no, pretty... No, pretty... Barbie girl was fun. Yeah, I think Oh, Barbie Cam's girl... coming out swinging <laughs> for Barbie girl. <laughs> I will fight for that one. <laughs> he's, uh, he's getting ready for the uh, the film this year. Yeah, oh, that be song better be in the movie. Big time. It better hard, yeah. It should yeah. be in the film. You have to have it. I mean... The body, Bodies of Wonderland is a song that I would totally include in the worst possible songs to hear. I can't remember how that one goes. Sing it, Cam. Oh, God. I don't know. The John Mayer song. No. Like, it was on, it was on endlessly. It was awful. So that one would definitely be under consideration. There's all these, like, 
Because I think like the thing is we're list we're listing songs that probably played on like music channels when we were, um, you know, in our whatever teens or twenties. But like, there's so many like adult contemporary songs of that time period that would be so much worse to have to listen to. Uh, and so yeah, I mean, the John Mayer one I feel like was played on all the adult contemporary stations, and it drove me crazy. I I was always annoyed by um, Four Non Blondes. What's up? Oh, okay. Yeah. I had to yeah. sing that live several times. Yeah, it, well, it, it got played so much. Yeah, it was very yeah. overplayed. If something gets played, that I mean, I remember um, "Baby, I Love You Away," the big mountain version. I remember hearing that when I was just, oh. was, yeah, just playing all all the time. And like now, I don't mind hearing it because you know it's not on all the time. But it just used to be. There was a summer where it was just played on a loop. Basically. Speaking of covers, what about Limp Biscuits "Behind Blue Eyes"? I mean, that's post nineties. It uh, is, uh, but that's pretty bad. Yeah, I I think I'm going to stick to uh, Cam's first answer, which is I fall sixty five blue dabba dee dabba die. Boom. Good call. Are we, yeah. Hey, what? Also, also awful. Uh, <laughs> I I I'd sooner have to crash test dummies. I think. Um, any other notes for us, Cam? Yeah, I, I I don't think so. I think that just yeah, it was, um, just really I liked I liked all the asides that Kate McKinnon's character had about kind of her ex boyfriends, the fact that she'd been out with Mandy Patinkin, and um, <laughs> and that Ewan to Balzac less and less with every experience. So just like so also, it's just her lines, isn't it? Just that you, one could just spend an hour reciting them. Really, they're just yeah, they're so funny. It- Absolutely delightful. Um, some hilarious stuff she comes up with. I think the only note... I mean, I was going to bring up the song as well, so we were all on the same page with that one. But the only other thing I thought was quite funny was that... Uh, I think I might be stealing something off can here, actually. No, no, go for it. The only other thing I thought was funny was Justin Theroux's, uh Drew's cover job. It's, he's a podcaster for NPR. Right, and he does a podcast on jazz and economics. Yeah. <laughs> Um, now we all do podcasts here, so I I guess that means we're actual spies in reality. Yeah, it's just our cover job. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, this is deep cover. We're doing a movie. We're doing a, a spy movie podcast whilst trying to hide the fact that we're spies. Exactly. Uh, Cam, did you have any final notes? Yeah, I guess I've got two things I'll mention. Uh, one, the scene where Kate McKinnon is trying to swallow the drive was very funny some great physical comedy there uh and i feel like that's a scene i've seen many times but i felt like i hadn't seen this version and it was funny Mm -hmm. and lastly i think a missed opportunity um there's a point where um mila kunis and justin thoreau are running away as you know explosions and bullets are going off Mm -hmm. from his apartment and they run past like a box and it has a dvd of his and it's called Marked Target. And I was like, I actually paused and rewound three times because it's very quick. But I was like, that's a missed opportunity. It should have been like a Seagal movie or something like that. Why is that? Just give it like a like an in-joke. Like what's kind of douchey something that this guy would be watching? Oh, like... Marked Target is nothing. It's not a real movie. Oh, so make it play into him being like an undercover dickhead, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, Steven Seagal film would be the perfect choice. Exactly, like one of the, not one of the prime era, like under siege, but like one of the straight to video ones from later down the road. Right, yeah, that works. Uh, I would, uh, that's that's the first like red flag. Maybe they didn't want to show it too early that he was a bad guy. Maybe, maybe. But Mark Target, not a real movie. And believe me, I looked. 
you're 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 making the screenplay now. Exactly. Yes. Well, it's uh, knock list time, and Cam, as we have a guest, please just let the world know what we do here with the knock list. Yes. So basically, every week after we finish talking about a movie, we determine whether it belongs in the all-time pantheon of great spy films. Some movies that have been included: Goldeneye and Goldfinger, Notorious, um, Thirty Nine Steps, uh, all sorts of like classic films. But even some like oddballs, like the Shersha Ronan movie Hannah, um, Zero Dark Thirty. People might not think of when you think of all-time great spy films. But that's on there. So, yeah, it's kind of a diverse list of uh, all sorts of spy films. And so, basically, we all get a vote now whether this film makes the knock list. And our guest always goes first. So, Kat, you're up. Is The Spy Who Dumped Me going on the list of the best spy movies ever made? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's got witty dialogue. It's got great chemistry between the leads. The The action sequences are really beautifully choreographed. Um, I think the detail in all the dialogue is really great. Actually, some some of the detail reminds me a little bit of, you know, the the ending of When Harry Met Sally, where he kind of lists all the things that he loves about Sally, and that's why he loves it. Like, there's something about this movie where they, they incorporate that spirit of the reason why you love another person is about the detail of them, and they really capture that with this friendship, I think. So, yeah, and also the fact that it's a female-led spy comedy is a fantastic thing, I think. And, you know, it's they really show their comedy chops and their action chops. So I think it should be going on the list. Okay, so it's all to play for. There's one yes. Let's see how we go. Cam, you're up. You are the deciding vote, I, I imagine. Uh, I'm a no on this one, I think. Oh, like, drama. This is a movie I think is enjoyable, and I would recommend people watch it. I don't know why this movie's been completely ignored, but I think for me, it's it's like I said, it's, you know, the pacing issues in the back half, um, some of the messiness here, but this is the type of movie that just because it doesn't belong next to some of the all-time greats, it, it's still a fun movie, and I would uh, encourage people to check out, but even when I think of female-fronted spy films I've seen, there's one I can think of that I would rank considerably higher that I think will be a very different discussion when we're talking about the knock list. Mm, I'm curious to know what that film might be, but we'll we'll, mm. we'll wait. We'll wait. But it's a yes and a no. So my vote for the first time in a long time in a three-way vote <laughs> actually means something because we're not all on the same page. Let's all just take a moment to bask in this moment's glory. <laughs> I really enjoyed this film. I didn't enjoy it enough for it to make the knock list. I'm not going to make you wait for it. It's a no. But is this a film I recommend you check out as ancillary watching to the knock list? If it's, is there a good spy comedy? Yeah. I'm not even going to say female-led spy comedy. I'm not going to add that asterisk on it. A good spy comedy. This is one to watch. Absolutely. Is it an example of some of the best spy films of all time? No, I think there's probably stronger comedies. I think of like quite a few ones. But overall... I was genuinely surprised by what this film gave me, and I think I might reach for it again sometime. A movie that I kind of liken it to, not in terms of <laughs> similarities so much as just in terms of my enjoyment, The Silencers. A movie that, like, you know, the the first of the Dean Martin, Matt Helms, where it's like the world of it is fun, the characters are fun. It doesn't quite, to me, hit that top-tier level, but it's a very watchable experience and one I think people would have a lot of fun sitting through. You can tell that 
the the co-writing duo really enjoyed this idea and had a good time writing it and i think they had a good time shooting it too there's a lot of love that went into this the stunts we didn't speak too much about them but they were fantastic they got gary powell it's all on the screen that's what that man does uh genuinely enjoyable it's not without its faults and i think that's probably why it missed going on the knock list but overall it's definitely one to check out i think after you've checked out all the films on the knock list and would make a good double feature with Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Yay! So make that a separate <laughs> night. <laughs> yes, and uh, I was interested because Justin Theroux is in this and is in Romy and Michelle. And then in Booksmart, uh, Lisa Kudrow is in Booksmart. So I think that just the legacy of Romy and Michelle is just um, in, uh, you know, these writers' films, you know. You know what? Throw in Booksmart. Make it a triple feature. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but there you go. It's uh, one yes and two no's. And as such, the dossier on The Spy Who Dumped Me is complete and filed as classified. It is not making the knock list. I did just want to ask before we wrap up, though, through the lens of your show, The Don't You Want Me podcast, uh, Cap, how would you think this film would fare? Oh, well, I think there'd be an awful lot to talk about. In fact, I, you know, I think that it would be a perfect choice for... Um our podcast because it's so rich you know that's that's the thing it's you that's what you want when you talk about a relationship between people they give you so much history there it's all there in the dialogue uh it's all there in the interplay the fact that they're going through all of these things together they're helping each other with their personal lives you know they know everything that's good and bad about each other and they support and love each other anyway i think it's a really you know realistic but also really hopeful and positive representation of a friendship between two people and that can be a really lovely thing we did an episode on i love you man i don't know whether you guys have seen that paul rudd mm -hmm. jason Segel yeah. movie and um yeah there are elements of it that you know a little bit like that that kind of thing of um of sometimes it's really good to have a friend that encourages you to you know get out of your comfort zone a little bit you know and explore new things it's really great to have a quite wild friend in your life that will do that for you so um, i think I think it's a little bit like that in that way. We also did an episode, by the way, on True Lies, um, which mm. I really enjoyed looking into. I know you guys have done an episode on that one too. So that's another spy one that um, people can check out if they want. So, yeah. Well, that was going to be my, my follow-up question. But, I mean, firstly, I'll start by saying, Kat, thank you for for stepping out of your podcast and onto ours. Your, the tuxedo fits well. Uh, I'm glad <laughs> you've you been enjoying much. your martini. You know, it's great. <laughs> um but you know delicious meal that you made yes 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 indeed um now when we have people who have sh a podcast on the show i i think the one of the good questions to also ask is if we're going to send listeners your way and we'll we'll put a link in the show notes below to one of your episodes what's a good starting episode like a good introductory episode for people to get sort of the idea of what your show is like oh well then they might how about true lies then perhaps that might be something that your your listeners would like and also maybe on her majesty's secret service mm. so we did that we did an episode on that one which i really enjoyed doing as well so maybe one of those two would be something that your listeners might enjoy hopefully It'd be lovely to have them <laughs> oh yeah we'll, we'll, we'll tag you and everything this week not a problem and there'll be links in the show notes below everyone to those episodes but um Kat, where can people find you and find the show online? Uh, well, we're at um, Don't You Want Me, uh, which is DYWM podcast. And we're on Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me at Kitty Costanza 
on Twitter and on Instagram. And yeah, come and say hello. Awesome. Perfecto. Well, again, thank you for uh, stepping on the show and thank you for joining me on Valentine's Day. It really helped get past the time with Cam because he's quite boring. So. Yeah. Oh, it's been that <laughs> there's no other way I'd like to spend Valentine's Day evening. So thank you both so much for having me. Well, Kat, once again, thank you for joining us. And of course, we urge you all to check out the Don't You Want Me podcast. There will be links in the show notes below. And of course, later this week, we do have an interview with the co-writer of this film, Mr. David Isaacson, which we urge you all to check out on Friday. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast. So you get that in your podcast feed as soon as it drops. But next week, Cam, what do we have for everyone? Well, Scott, we are definitely changing things up for sure. We are looking at the 1952 James Mason film, Five Fingers, directed by Joseph Mankiewicz. And this one is a World War II set thriller. And it is also available on YouTube. So anyone out there who wants to check out The Five Fingers, you can search it on YouTube. It's right there. Yes, it's on YouTube, so you've got no excuse but to go and check it out. Uh, we'll have a link in the show notes for next week's episode, but in the meantime, just search Five Fingers James Mason on YouTube and you'll find it. But that means, of course, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Five Fingers and join us next week. If you liked what you heard on the show this week, please make sure you're subscribed and please consider leaving us a five-star review. It really helps us spread the word about Spy Hearts Podcast. And if you don't already, please follow us discreetly, of course, on social media at Spy Hards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, Bratwurst, am I right?